This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. With everything that is going on and parents having to make judgment calls on what team to play on, what club to join, and what league is best to be in, there is a very simple solution if you are questioning the competitive level and the developmental benefits for your player. If your player is dominant in their current situation, a solution for increasing their competitive environment is playing up. Play up one or even two age groups. But before you dive in headfirst and do that, you need to understand it's not black and white. There are many things to consider. Having said that, I want to tell you some of the questions that we get about this stuff all of the time. We get questions like, is my player on the right team? Is my player at the right club? Is my player being challenged enough? Should I move my player to the club across town that's playing in the quote unquote better league? Is my player good enough to be in a professional academy? As coaches, we've gotten these questions from players and parents that we work with on a very intimate basis. But we also get these questions in emails and on Twitter from others who seek our advice. Generally, in those cases, it's harder to give a specific answer to questions like these. First off, we just don't know enough about you or your player or your situation to say what's best. Maybe you are in a great situation. Maybe you're not. We just don't know. But what we can tell you is that a viable solution to your competitive playing environment problem is playing up. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to start by letting you know about the coaching courses that we offer at 343coaching.com. So if you are a coach and you would like to accelerate your development and learn from proven practitioners, by that I mean guys that have shown what can be done in the United States at virtually every level, then you need to go to 343coaching.com and look at our online coaching courses. These programs come with video and audio lessons for you to study, as well as downloadable ebooks. The premium memberships also come with access to over five years worth of questions and answers in the members only forums. And premium members are instantly connected to the nationwide network of 343 coaches. So, to learn more about those courses and everything else that we offer, you can go to 343coaching.com. All right, with that said, let's get into today's episode. Finding the right competitive level for your player within the structured club environment can help maximize the chances of them fulfilling their potential and fully developing in all four of the key categories technical, tactical, physical, and psychological. But finding the appropriate level is not always easy. There is so much to know, and this process of finding the appropriate levels starts at a very young age, oftentimes before parents are even properly orientated in the American soccer landscape. It typically begins with the decision to move your child from recreational to club soccer. This is usually done once your player has demonstrated that they are superior in one or more of the four categories just listed. As your player graduates to club soccer and continues to develop, you will need to continue evaluating the environment your player is in, especially 
if your player is demonstrating they are dominant at the level that they are at. Because maintaining the proper level of competition is critical for your player's development. As stated earlier, you might find yourself asking questions like, is my player on the right team? Is my player at the right club? Is my player being challenged enough? These are all valid questions. And as you go through those in your head, you might start feeling the pressure to move your player, which brings up some concerns, such as the other clubs cost more money. The coach of the other team isn't that good, but the team is in a quote unquote better league. They close down the development academies near me and all that's left are ECNL teams. Are those good? There isn't an MLS academy for hundreds of miles. What should I do? Again, these are all legitimate concerns. So if you think your player is exceptional, is there a way to continue to challenge them where they are currently at? The answer to this is yes. Play up. To discuss this option, here is 343 founder Gary Kleiben. If you're a talented player, which let's face it, if you're up against a decision whether to join an MLS academy or stay at your current club or, or play at a, I don't know, let's call it the tier two uh, competitive circuit, you know, at ECNL or whatever it is that happens to be. If you're that type of player that is that has that sort of decision to make, then within your current club, you can always ask or be placed to play up, play up. So if you're, you are a 15-year-old, play in the circuit with the 17, 18-year-olds, play two years up. That solves your competitive uh, circuit issue right there and then. And then the other thing, if you don't do that and you stay and you find yourself playing against uh, – you know, 50% of the time playing against weaker opposition and you're winning 4-0, This is where that example of, hey, in the rest of the world, that is what happens. For example, at Ajax, for example, if you're at Barcelona, for example, if you're here, if you're there, they have 50% of the time they are smashing their opponents and it does not impact their, their development pipeline. Okay, so you have a solution. You can play up but you must understand the reality of this situation. Playing up one, two, or even three years will not be a walk in the park. There will be an adjustment period. Speed of play is going to be different. Less space, less time on the ball. The size of the opponents is going to be different. You're going to be playing against monsters. You're no longer going to be able to do whatever you want whenever you want. To talk about that adjustment period, here is Gary again. They have to be aware that there are growing pains. They have to be aware that if they decide to go that route, uh, you may not be the star of your of the team that you're playing two years up with. Uh, you may your your playing time may get reduced. You there's a whole bunch of factors that could impact your psychology, the parent psychology and the player psychology. So they just need to, you know, be prepared for that. And that's and that's part of development. Are you willing to go through that sort of situation in order to? overcome it and then become come out the other side a better player because you overcame it as gary alluded to playing up can be a big test but it can also be the key ingredient when it comes to developing the psychological aspect of a player and this is something that he has seen many times firsthand brian Kleiben, gary's brother has been somewhat of a pioneer in playing players up not playing individual players up but sometimes playing entire teams up and not against scrubs 
against some of the best teams in the world, against Ajax and FC Barcelona, against Manchester City and Cholos, against domestic teams like FC Dallas in the Development Academy Finals. Brian consistently played players up as a way of challenging them and furthering their development in all four categories. Once Brian started demonstrating ultra success with full teams playing up a year, sometimes even two years, then, all of a sudden, the rest of the franchises and teams in the league started dipping their toes into playing up as well. We'll talk more about the benefits of playing entire teams up or down in next week's episode. But one notable case of individual players playing up is Uli Yanez. Uli was born in 2001. When playing age-appropriate, Uli was always dominant. He demonstrated that he was far superior in the technical category. Thanks to proper coaching from Brian, Uli was also very advanced tactically. Physically, he was never the biggest player on the field, but he was never the smallest. All things considered, he was clearly a cut above the rest in the 2001 age group. So, for the majority of his youth career, he played up, mostly with and against 2000s. But after a short while, he needed another challenge. By the time Uli turned 16, he was playing against seasoned professionals, grown men, in the USL. He also trained on many occasions with LA Galaxy's first team, alongside the likes of Zlatan, Jonah Dos Santos, and Gio Dos Santos, without issue. This was a big confidence boost. He played up an entire cycle with the US national team at the U20 World Cup. He moved to Germany and began his professional career at age 18. Then, soon after that, he made his debut with the full national team and scored the game's only goal from a penalty kick. From a young age, Uli demonstrated that he was superior in three of the four developmental categories. However, the psychological aspect of his game, his mentality, was forged in significant part by playing up. From a young age, he was playing against bigger, faster, stronger, and older competition. And doing that for so many years is what helped prepare him for moving halfway across the world by himself without knowing the language, to compete for a spot on the roster of a professional club in one of the toughest leagues in Europe. There is a lot more to Uli's story that we will discuss in future episodes, but the takeaway here is that playing up is a viable solution to the competitive problem. So if you are facing the decision of finding the right competitive level for your player, playing up is something that you can do too. Don't go anywhere. We will be back in a moment to answer your questions from last week's episode. But first, a quick message about our player development masterclass. If you are a parent that is looking for smarter training plans for your player, we have a program for you. As coaches, we've mentored youth and professional soccer players, and we want to help you properly mentor your player too. That is why we developed the player development masterclass. The course isn't quite ready yet, but you can get on the priority enrollment list right now. We'll be launching the course soon, and the people that are on the priority enrollment list will be the first to know when registration opens. You can find all of that information at 343masterclass.com. All right, here are the answers to your questions from last week's episode. Last week, we discussed the balancing act that most coaches fail at which is the balancing act of how much fun do you incorporate into your training sessions and how much of it is actually competitive and cutthroat and players getting stuck in. 
So that balancing act brought up a lot of questions. And to answer those, we enlisted the help of Gary Kleiben, and he is going to be answering those questions. So we will start with question number one that comes from Andrew Zemer. And Andrew asked, how crucial do you find the parents' role within this culture? Here's Gary to answer that. Andrew, thanks for the question, dude. Long time, no talk. Um, let's dive right into it, 100%. Parents uh, are absolutely essential, crucial to this whole enterprise of trying to balance a highly competitive environment while also have, making sure that the players are having a good time and enjoying themselves. Um, parents can fall on both sides of the aisle, right? They can either support you in this enterprise and, and be a, um, I don't know, an influencer themselves with their kids and with the group as a whole um, to help you along the way, or they could end up being uh, a cataclysmic event where they destroy or tamper or sabotage the balance that you're trying to strike and the culture you're, you're trying to establish. So this kind of comes down to, once again, the expertise of the coach in many ways. The expertise of him or her being able to um, be so knowledgeable in football that when they communicate with a parent, the parent comes across or comes thinking like, wow, I'm really speaking to somebody who knows their shit um, and my kid is in good hands. You know, let me kind of step back a little bit more and not be so helicopterish, if that's a word, and let you do your thing. Now, that won't happen 100% of the time with 100% of the parents or even with any particular individual parent, they're always going to be involved. And the moment things start going south for their kids, um, you know, you know, all hands on deck, anything can happen there. But the coach needs to have that expertise also in teaching the parents, educating the parents, being able to persuade them into alignment with the culture and the balance that the coach is trying to strike. Uh, which is a skill all unto itself. And this is something that traditionally isn't very isn't done very well, if at all. And it, because it takes a lot of time and investment and know-how. You can't just have a group parent meeting. You gather all the parents around, you talk to them for five, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe even an hour. Um, you know, I've partaken in many of these. Every coach has, they do it every season with every team that they have, maybe multiple times a season, that's not gonna cut it. Yes, you can talk about your philosophy in that meeting. Yes, you can start talking about all these things that you know you want to accomplish and why it's good for their kids um, to do, go down this route. But group setting, 30 minutes, it's not, gonna, it, it's not good enough. You really need to go deep into philosophy. You really need to uh, connect with the parents on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis, have long form extended conversations one-on-one -on -one with each and every one of them. And that's a lot of time, guys. That is a lot of time. It could be in written form, but mostly one-on-one -on -one in person is the way to go. And that can bear a lot of fruit because ultimately you can 
you know, persuade them and bring them along in your direction. You're able to, on the one-on-one case, be able to read their body language, be able to listen to, you know, their concerns, their values, their way of viewing uh, life, their children, parenting, football in particular. And then according to that listening that you do, adjust, you know, your narrative accordingly to best ensure that what you're communicating to them sinks in well instead of being deflected right off the bat uh, and not penetrating at all. Um, so again, it's a huge investment on the coach's side, but if you want to strike this competitive balance, in particular, if you want a really competitive environment, which is what we're advocating, you're gonna need to have the parents on board. Um, you won't get all of them, you it's just a factor of life you know it might seem like you have everybody on board but there's always one two five people who you know are a little bit disgruntled and it usually comes down to a couple of things one first and foremost about everything else is if you know their kid is having quote-unquote success within your environment things are okay you know they'll they'll keep supporting keep going along with the program if in their view their kid isn't having success and that may be an incorrect view that they have the kid may be developing and having quite a bit of success but they may disagree but if it's their view that matters if in their view the kid's not having success then you need to brace yourself because it's going to be a problem and you'll be confronted or they'll start you know uh subverting what you're trying to do perhaps with other parents what are the inciting events all all my colleagues everybody kind of knows what they are playing time is one of them if the player's not getting uh the playing time that the parent thinks that the player deserves um in 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 their view you know of the game in their view of development then that's a problem and then the other inciting event again is winning you know i have this saying uh, that I published a while back and I keep going back to it because it's just a truth that here, winning is the currency that enables a coach to continue their process. Let me say it again a little bit slower. Winning is the currency that enables a coach to continue their process. So if the team is winning, and let's say it's 11 v 11, and you have 16 players on the roster, 17 players on the roster, whatever, well, you always have 11 starters, okay? And maybe that one, the 12th player, the 13th player is always kind of in the mix of being a starter too. And if the team is winning, those top 11 players, 12 players, 13 players, they're fine, they're okay. Um, and since it's a great majority, you're fine as well. You know, nobody's going to come and try to uh, incite a coup to remove you as the coach of the team. Now, when the team starts losing or if it loses a game or too many games in a row or whatever, then naturally it's an opportunity and parents you know, want to inject uh, their philosophy and their ideas and their opinions as to what's right and what's wrong with what's happening in the coaching environment. Um, and then, you know, all hell breaks loose again, but it is also a function of how well educated or how good of a job you've done educating them um, and to preempt uh, such scenarios, but they always exist. 
So again, I went on a long rant there, Andrew. You're, you've been in the game for decades. You know very well. I don't have to you know, really express these things to you. Um, I think it's a great question for everybody to hear. Um, and I think that's probably why you asked it, or maybe you actually want to see a little bit more about the inner workings of, of what I think. Um, but there you have it. All right. Question number two comes from Nico Serolini, and he asks, which one of these influences, the fun or competitive influence, affects the team the most? Nico, thank you for the question, man. So, yeah, which which one of these fun or competitive influences uh, the most or which one's the most important? I guess it's kind of the gist of the question. And, and you know, I want to push back a little bit here and say that it's a little bit difficult to say uh, what's more important because both of them are important. They both complement each other. They're both coupled. Um, and, you know, trying to quantify that saying, you know, 30% fun, 70% competitive, 50-50 or 70 fun, 30% competitive, trying to quantify what that ratio is, is probably not the best way to go about thinking about these things. Um, I think in general, if we want to get a feel, um, I think most people would agree that at the younger ages, uh, say, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years of age, uh, kids are just getting started, they're going out and, you know, having a good time, having fun is probably the largest thing that they need to experience, okay? And not the competitive side. Let them enjoy themselves. Let them fall in love with the ball. Uh, let them want to, uh, you know, play more, you know, instead of playing less. So the emphasis on fun is huge. Competition, hey, if you want to throw, you know, some competitive spirit, you know, make them feel a little bit of, of that, that's great too, you know, but, you know, uh, there's a line there. Maybe in Uruguay, they think differently. I'm not sure if you're aware of what happens in Uruguay. There's these infamous sort of uh, cage battles between super young kids, you know, five, four, three, seven years of age, 10 years of age, where it's absolute all-out warfare in the cage. Um, different culture, different way of viewing things. Uh, can that be effective as well? Probably, you know, uh, I think a lot of Uruguayans uh, who became professionals or uh, players in the past or even players, you know, common folk, you know, who experienced that when they were growing up say that there are fond memories there too. And even if some memories aren't as fun or fun, you know, where they got hurt or something of that nature, that is still something that helped develop them in some positive fashion. But again, cultural differences. If we go come back to the US, yeah, I would say, hey, let's emphasize the fun stuff at the younger uh, levels. Or if the team is of a low level or the players in general of a low level, yeah, more fun. You know, it's more recreational nature. nature. If we want to talk about a competitive um, level or older players, well, listen, the, the scales are tilted in the other direction now. If your goals or objectives is to be uh, the best player that you can possibly be with the greatest skills that you can possibly attain, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be becoming a professional, it could be 
some other goals in mind, but all competitive base, well then yeah, guys, like fun isn't, the, the, the funnel meter isn't as high as when we're talking about you seven kids uh, running around with a ball. So that's the spectrum and in between is where this balance that the, the episode is all about tries to cover. Uh, you know, for example, there's, I have a lot of experience with a whole bunch of players in the competitive realm and myself included, you know, even though I never became a professional soccer player, if you're competitive and you're playing in an environment that's not competitive, well, guess what? You're not having fun. My players who are ultra competitive that I've had the pleasure of helping coach or coach directly, they don't have fun uh, when things are not ultra competitive. So there's that dichotomy there as well to consider. Um, so that's basically the gist of it, man. Uh, your second question was, you know, what would I consider or what would I define or what me metrics or indicators I would use to define a successful youth training program? Well, again, you know, this kind of goes back to how the program, a particular program markets itself. Does a particular program say it's a recreational one or a competitive one? If they're saying recreational, great, go and have fun. But most of what we're talking about here are clubs that consider themselves competitive clubs who play in competitive gaming circuits, who market themselves as, uh, you know, fulfilling each player's potential, if you will. And if that's the case, if that's their positioning, then a decent indicator of a good program, I would say, is going to the fields on the weekends and if their teams are exhibiting outrageous uh, focus, intensity uh, throughout 90 minutes of their game where every player is getting stuck in, every player is not shying away from challenges, they're looking for challenges, every player is trying to win uh, their matchups and the match, and same with the technical staff on the sidelines looking at their intensity levels, if that's what's happening, if there's this sort of, this is the World Cup final, there is no tomorrow sort of uh, feel to it, then it's pretty much a safe bet that their training environments are probably of that nature as well. That would be my recommendation as a good external indicator for people to look for. The challenge there you know, exists also that everybody has a different sort of barometer or calibration point as to what they consider competitive. Um, for instance, in all my years being on the sidelines, I've overheard, you know, watching other, you know, two teams go at it. I've overheard parents or coaches or whatever saying, oh, wow, this is such a high level, intense game, super competitive. And I'm looking at it thinking like, my goodness, like, how are you calibrated? What standard are you referencing? Because what I'm seeing here is very non-competitive and low level. So there's that consideration also, but to answer your question, that's where I would go. Uh, it, it's probably the best indicator because you don't have the privilege, nor do I, to go into everybody's training environment and witnessing it um, firsthand on a consistent basis to draw any more uh, conclusions.
Hope that answers or helps answer uh, your question, Nico. If not, hit me up. I'll try to get back at you. Okay. Question number three from Art Hernandez. He asks, how do we change the fun and soft culture from the bottom up? It appears that you can only do that on a team-by-team basis if the coach has the know-how and the balls to do it. Art, good question, dude. So this fun and soft culture, how can we change it? Uh, Beyond the micro level that is the coach and his small environment, which is the team, well, we can just go up one level from that and you have the club and the club structure and that organization. If you have a leadership team there that has the know-how, the willpower, the impetus to do such thing, they can. Uh, they can establish what type of culture that they want the club to have, uh, what level of competitiveness they want to be at. And with that in mind, they can then disseminate it throughout their ranks, to, down to their coaches and their managers and their families, and have you know policies in place or ways of operating such that this is enforced. And it doesn't have to be a bad sort of enforcement. It's simply, hey, this is going to be our culture, you know, and if you don't really fit our culture, um, you know, you need to come into alignment. Um, And hopefully they're able to hire people that are already aligned or close to being aligned. So over the course of whatever it may take, you know, months or years, more, more likely, you can absolutely converge on a club scale uh, environment. And then if you go further removed from that, you have the league level, uh, the league slash community level. And that also can be done. Uh, for example, you know, I've lived in California, Southern California my whole life. And the past 20, 30 years that I've been involved in the game, uh, well, I've been involved in the game since I was able to walk, but, you know, involved in the game in, in a more, I don't know, adult sort of fashion. You know, the Mexican leagues here, the immigrant leagues here are outrageously competitive, not soft at all. And that's not to say that they're not having fun there. They absolutely are having fun. Their kids are having fun and the adults are having fun. But it's super competitive, far more competitive than what everybody thinks of as club soccer here. That is a league-wide, that is a culture-wide, community-wide thing that's happening and not at a micro scale with just one coach and one team. So that's proof positive that it can be done. But again, you need league leadership, you need community leadership to want to have that be the situation. Um, And there's another, for example, that isn't Mexican or Immigrant League. You know, we had the Coast Soccer League here in Southern California. It still exists, but, you know, back before the Development Academy came along, where the Federation and MLS basically usurped the Coast Soccer League, the Coast Soccer League was the most competitive environment that I have witnessed in this country. Um, far more competitive than the Development Academy. Um, and, 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 you know, people will say that's my opinion, and sure, I guess it's an opinion, but, you know, I will go to the grave saying that that is actually the case. The Coast Soccer League, widely regarded as the best league in the country back before the Development Academy, was the more competitive league. And I'll tell you why, too. 
It's very simple. It had promotion relegation. Okay? They had five tiers, I think five or six tiers from the bronze level, you know, the entry level of club soccer, all the way to the top level, which was uh, the Premier League. And everybody, every weekend, on all the sidelines, across the league, it was a war zone. And on the field, it was a war zone. People wanted to try to earn their way up and be promoted. And they wanted to avoid relegating down to a lower level. And if you're in the middle of the pack, let's say, and you're... Uh, your prospects of being promoted had kind of like died out. It was just, you knew it wasn't going to happen and you also weren't going to be relegated. Well, guess what? Those teams also took tremendous pride when they're playing the first, second or third place team, tremendous pride in trying to spoil their party. Okay. And when they were playing against teams that were in a relegation battle, they also took tremendous pride in getting that team relegated. Um, it was a sight to behold. A whole bunch of great players, national team players from our country that played World Cups came out of this league that are just as good, if not better, than you know what has been coming out of the Development Academy. There is no difference there. But I'll tell you what, the Coast Soccer League, which was run all throughout Southern California and a lot of San Diego teams participated as well. And they won a lot of national titles when they had to go and compete, you know, regionally and then nationally. This was a fantastic competitive environment that also trickled into the interiors of every club that com it comprised, was comprised of and every team that it was comprised of because the coaches felt the pressure, the families felt the pressure, the players felt the pressure. And don't let people say that pressure is a bad thing. Pressure is a good thing. It incites competition. And through competition also, you can get garner a lot of joy and satisfaction from encountering challenges and overcoming those challenges. So can it be done? Art absolutely can be done at a much broader scale than just one coach and one team. But the greatest scenario of it all is if you have that one coach with the expertise who's inculcating it at the maximum possible level of his team and have that team competing in a structure as I just described. That's the holy grail. It can be done, but again, it comes down to leadership, people who are establishing these structures uh, to be able to go in that direction. And so far, you know, we don't have great leadership. Hopefully one day that changes. Hopefully, you know, people like you and, uh, and others, you know, start applying pressure to leaders to do something better or step down or puts pressure on leadership teams to hire the right people in the right positions to organize and create a structure that does what I described. Our thanks for the question, man. I'll talk to you later. And our last question for today, question number four, comes from Alan Miller. Alan asks, what are your thoughts on abusive coaches? Those who can't properly balance competitiveness with empathy or are trying to hide a lack of expertise. And what about the damage that they can do to elite players? Alan, thank you for the question, dude. I think um, this will be the last one that I address. I think it's an important one. Uh, I think it's one that really strikes a chord with many people when they read it or hear it in particular because it uses a very strong word and that word being abusive and, and allocating that word to coaches. So my thoughts on abusive coaches. Um, 
I, I think I, we need to be a little bit more careful, okay? I think we need to be careful in judging someone as abusive, uh, and here's why. In, in, in my experience, in all my experience, and I like to think it's quite a lot, you know, it's decades worth, um, as a practitioner, being on the sidelines, uh, and an observer, I can't name one single coach, and I've encountered hundreds, okay? I can't single out one coach and say, that coach right there, that's an abusive coach. Everybody should stay away from them, and in fact, you know, somebody should do something about this coach. Maybe I've been lucky, maybe, I don't know, um, you disagree, others disagree. Uh, certainly that probably is the case, but that gets to the crux of the matter here, is that I think this term abusive is a subjective one, like so many other things. Uh, what one views as abusive, the other views as competitive. What one views as competitive may actually be abusive. Um, so where do we draw the line is probably the thing here to tackle, but it's something that's extraordinarily difficult to tackle. Where is the line? Uh, and people might hold firm opinions on what that line is. And then, you know, if it's too soft, then a whole bunch of coaches can be classified as abusive, I guess. And if it's too hard nose, too hard line, too, I don't know, medieval, um, then maybe zero coaches uh, are ever identified as abusive. I'm not trying to say that's me, guys, okay? Uh, I'm trying to be sincere and genuine in, in answering the question. I think, uh, you know, most all of my colleagues, most all practitioners that I've come across, I would never la label them as abusive. That what I will say, and this won't gain me any friends, especially among um, the parent community, because I'll probably go at them, you know, the hardest here. Um, aside from somebody calling a coach abusive, which could be envy of another coach or envy of an administrator or envy of, you know, somebody that's not a parent. Um, from the parent side, it could be a disgruntled parent because their, you know, their opinion of their own kid's level is far removed from reality. Um, there are parents who are frankly just in la-la land thinking their kid is elite. Um, then, you know, when the kid's playing time or recognition or accolades or whatever doesn't match their distorted views, uh, then they look to blame or vilify someone, okay? And, and generally speaking, if the player isn't receiving what they believe they deserve, and I'm not talking about the kid, I'm talking about the parent, then they may look at it as an abusive act you know, an act of not giving the player, you know, not building up his confidence or, or knocking a player down or, you know, maybe being too hard on the player, expecting too much of the player. Uh, uh, I mean, the possibilities are endless. Uh, but basically, that is definitely something that many of my colleagues, if not all of my colleagues and coaching colleagues, have always have at least one story, and I'm being generous here, it's dozens of stories, uh, hundreds of stories uh, to this effect. Um, and it happens all the time. Every team, every season, every year, you know, this is happening. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's kind of my take on this thing. I think maybe, uh, I don't know, Alan, I mean, 
we need to be careful. Uh, I certainly want to be careful and not, you know, charge somebody with with such a strong uh, word. Um, and you know, some of the, some of the times when a parent removes their kid from a particular team and takes them somewhere else, you know, where the coach they think is not going to be quote unquote abusive and the kid doesn't have success there either. You know, sometimes that's a data point that that I'm hoping parents can take away that maybe their perceptions are the ones that are amiss here. Um, I don't know where else to take that from. I try to give my off the cuff answer there, my honest answer. Alan, please feel free to follow up with me. Uh, it seems like it's a very powerful, potent, emotional sort of question. Um, if I'm off base and you want to you know, say something otherwise, I more than welcome that and we can further the discussion. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening. Do you have a question about the topic that we covered in this episode? If so, we'd love to hear from you and we will be answering some of your questions at the end of next week's episode. Submit your questions on Twitter or head to 343coaching.com to leave your question in the comment section. Make sure that you are subscribed to 343FM on your favorite podcasting app. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more platforms. And if you're feeling super generous, we'd love it if you dropped us a five-star rating or a review. And don't forget that you can find our entire library of podcast episodes, over 200 written articles, and our online courses that help accelerate the development of coaches and players using methods that have been proven to work here in the United States. Once again, all of that can be found at 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time here on the 343 Podcast.